Welcome to Sacred Intersections Podcast, where we navigate the twisty roads of harmful theology, mental health, and religious abuse. I'm Jill. I'm an ordained pastor in the Presbyterian Church USA with training in pastoral care and counseling. And I'm Paula. I'm a licensed counselor, a counseling professor, and a person of Christian faith. So as we're getting started, we just want to say that Sacred Intersections Podcast is about respectful discussion and conversation to encourage you to think. We're not trying to make you think like us. We just want to make you think. That is our agenda. Neither one of us speaks on behalf of the Presbyterian Church USA or other organizations which we may be connected to in our professional lives, nor do we speak on behalf of all mental health care professionals and practitioners, people of faith, Jesus followers, white women, Americans, or people who love the theme song from Cheers. The theme song from Cheers, which we discussed in our last episode. (laughs) A place where everybody knows your name. Exactly. (laughs) So in addition to that, Sacred Intersections is a podcast that includes discussion and conversation about religion and spirituality and mental health and all those ways that they intersect. Because we were already having these kinds of conversations and we decided to record them and share them with you. So we're just really glad you're along for our journey, even if you're traveling a different road or driving different vehicles than we might be. So Jill, I am really so excited about our episode today. The big day. Big day. We have our first guest on Sacred Intersections podcast. Woohoo! Woohoo! Big clap. We can't clap too much for the sound, the audio. Well, I know we'll make it weird, but we're we're just really excited that to bring a third voice into all the stuff that we've been discussing. So we are it's so excited to welcome Emma, who works at the same university where I work. And we invited Emma for, for many reasons. Emma's a wealth of knowledge in so many different ways. But if you've been listening to all of our episodes, you've heard us do a couple of episodes on race and racism in the church and the all of the ways that Christians especially should be doing the work around becoming anti-racist and racial reconciliation. And so in our first episode that we did, which was kind of a longer one, it was just me and Jill, as all of our other episodes have been just me and Jill. And if you listen to that, you heard us say how we weren't even sure that we should have been having that conversation with just the two of us, with just two white women, but that we consulted several people. And Emma, who is our guest, is one of the people that I consulted around having that conversation. Um, But we knew with that conversation that we would of course, be limited as white women, but also we knew that that was just the first of many conversations that we were going to have. And so this is one of what we hope will continue to be many conversations from different perspectives. And so I mentioned that Emma and I work together. Emma is someone who has become such an important resource and wealth of knowledge for me. I've asked a lot of Emma and she has never once said no. I've asked Emma to come into several of my classes that I teach to be a resource for all of our students, but especially for our students of color or students who are marginalized in some way. Um, Emma always says yes. Emma is someone I trust completely to, to help me understand things, but to also just speak the truth in love. We've used that phrase here a lot on the podcast. And I just trust Emma will call me out when I need it, that Emma will hold me accountable for 
the work that I'm doing as a professor and as a colleague and as a teacher. And um, I just, she is someone that I really, really value her opinion. And so I was just so excited when she agreed to come. Um, so Emma, welcome. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. So we, you know, as we jump into this, we don't really, we just ask you to come and talk a little bit about race and racism in the church. And so maybe we can start out with just what made you say yes? What made you be willing to come and chat with us? Yeah, so that's a good question. Race, racism um, in society, in the church, in education, in the hospital, in what, I mean, in every structure, um, it exists in every structure in our society. And one thing, especially in the church, it's there, but we don't acknowledge it. Um, mm-hmm. or we don't want to see it. We turn our, you know, turn a blind eye to it. And it's something that we need to be held accountable for. Um, and I think in order to be held, when we're held accountable for the racism that exists in the church and all the fallout from that, only then can we move forward. Can the church truly be what I believe it's designed to be as a healing space for this world? So yeah, so, so that's initial, yeah. you know, my, my immediate response to that. Yeah. And you just said, I believe. So do you mind, are you comfortable sharing some of your identities, whether that be your racial identity or any connection spiritually or religiously that you have? Sure, absolutely. And um, I I almost have to do that because that is all that I'm bringing with me in all of my responses. None of, no part of me is going to be left out of of how um, we talk today. So um, African-American woman, um, grew up in rural South Carolina on a farm, was raised African Methodist Episcopal um, in the church when it was open and left when it was closed. And we went on every day to end to NY. And um, that was life. And I'm currently now attend a non-denominational church in East Charlotte, uh, North Carolina, which really spoke to me as an extension of my life work. So East Charlotte is the most diverse part of Charlotte. There are at one point, I don't know how accurate this number still is, but at one point it was said there are over 80 languages spoken in just this one side of town. So to be situated in a congregation where we are called to serve and to be able to serve people who are in every way possible different from me, but to still see us come together through service, through love, through work, through God, um, whatever we may call him, but to come together, um, that's what I need to be a part of. That's, um, that's what I believe heaven will look like. So I'm glad I get to experience a little bit of that here on earth right now. So, um, so yeah, so, so that's a little bit, a little bit about me there. Like I said, that is how I will respond. I can never take away my black experience. I can never take away what, what my life was like growing up in the South. I, I can't remove that. Um, so thank you for allowing me that space to, to, to put it out there and, and to let it be known. Yeah, no, I really appreciate you being willing to, to share that background, Emma. And, you know, Jill and I can sit here and see you, but our listeners can't. And so, right, yeah. so I thought it was really important that, yeah, that they know all the different places you're coming from. Yeah. So one of the things that we have started to do is we talk about this intersection of race and the church. And so we talk about all the different roads that we get to take to that intersection. So we have a mental health road and a, we have called it the religion road. 
uh, we just did an episode on religion and spirituality. So Paul, I don't know if we need to rename that road, the faith road maybe, or something like that. Mm -hmm. But um, Emma would love to hear you talk a little bit about the ways in which you see sort of those intersections with race and the church. Yeah, that's, that's, that's good. Where my thoughts are. So one thing, whenever I talk about, um, I, I love getting to do this one particular talk about how um, diversity, equity, and inclusion is, is actually biblical. It's actually, you know, it's, it's what we're, we're called to do. So one of the two, two key scriptures that are coming to me, and I'll paraphrase, of course, but God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. And I think that we forget the key word in that is world. It's not North Carolina, it's not America, it's the world. So that's every single person, the old song, Jesus loves all the little children, red and yellow, black, you know what I mean? It's, yeah. it's all of us in, in, in that one word. And we forget that. And when we do that, that's when we allow racism to enter into our faith journey, into our religion, into our worship, because then we start to see this, this scripture is meaning only me. And then if you're not like me, then God didn't send his only begotten son for, for you. And we use that belief as almost a basis for our racism um, and for our discrimination, for our lack of being motivated towards social justice issues. And then of course, the others in Revelation where we talk, um, it says, you know, we're all gonna come together from different nations and tongues and tribes. So we're all gonna be together again in heaven. So let's get it right here on earth. So when we get to heaven, it's just a celebration. We're not <laughs> figuring all this out, you know, on, on how we work together. But again, we make both of those things a, a me statement. And then we allow, and accept the racism to, to come in and they become synonymous because I'm, I'm believing the Bible, I'm believing what I'm saying, but my interpretation of it is so inward that um, I'm justified, you know, in, in, in the racist views that I have. And so the way that we interpret so many things gives permission, opens the highway for this racism, you know, in our faith walk, um, in our religious system, our constructs that we have. And, and we're just, and all of us are guilty of this too, right? I mean, it's, it's not just a white church or a black church or it's, we all do this in, in some way. And so um, we have to tackle that and get a better interpretation from the view of Jesus and not from our, our personal, what it, what it feels good, you know, what makes us feel like we're justified in our belief. Yeah. I think it was in our last episode, Jill, you kept saying over and over again, how we have to remember that I bear the image of God. And so does everyone else. Right. Is that how you said it, Jill? Well, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's so easy to focus just solely on ourselves and it's, and it's a lot easier to, to look at scripture the way we've been taught or the way that we've been raised, you know, I mean, Paula, I'm sure you'll laugh. I say this every episode there's ways in which we can make scripture say whatever we want it to say. I would call that proof texting. And, <laughs> and, and that's a huge, a huge injury that we do to ourselves. Cause if we just focus on one particular part, if we say, you know, God gave God's son to the world and, and we focus on so that whoever believes and we don't use the rest of the context, then we might be missing something. And same with the other passage that you raised, Emma, in Revelation. We have to take it the whole thing all mm -hmm. together. And it's easy to 
focus on ourselves. And then we forget that God created the whole world, the whole world. Yeah. God's son for the whole world, not just for people who look like us or think like us or agree with us. Yeah. I think, I think we're already kind of on that religion road where religion, spirituality, faith road, whichever road that is. So I wonder, Emma, if you want to say more about that, about kind of any ways that you have seen church or scripture or a religious system perpetuate racism or engage in racism, either overtly or not as overtly. Well, slavery, right? Um, So, you know, um, Ephesians, yes, Ephesians is the chapter that slave owners use to justify having slaves. So, you know, kind of what Jill was just saying, or exactly what Jill was saying, how we can make any scripture mean, you know, exactly what it is that we want to. And and then if you just don't read one line down, you miss a lot, you know, of what, of what the whole point is. Preach. Of that, you know, of that. And so, um, you know, so we can start there, just looking at, of course, American history, but we can start as far back as, you know, 1619, when, when the first indentured servants came um, to this country, um, as how religion has been used to make this okay. Um, and, it, and that the same things go all the way through civil rights up through, you know, today, right now, golly, I'm talking like racism is gone. It's, it's here, you know, it's, we can still um, pick out things, but there's also um, specific, more, more specific things that I think that churches are doing right now in um, missions, right? We send out these great groups of people to, to go and do missionary work and dealing with all these black and brown children, all these poor children, you know, all, all in the world. And we're doing exactly what it is we believe we're called to do. But the moment those children tried to come into this country, oh no, you got to have all this paperwork. You got to do this and you should have done this. But we were just in those same spaces, pouring out our love, pouring out, out God's love that's racism, that we use our religion to co- to cover up and we believe that we're doing God's work. God's work doesn't just happen in Africa. You can do that same thing with those same people in this country um, when, when they come here through through open open borders. So, um, you know, we have things of that nature. The, the lack, the Black Lives Matter m- movement, the silence that some churches have had, that's racism. To, to not see and to not value that this is a life. This is someone who was created in God's image, who is dead. Whatever you believe, why, how it should have happened, the reality is they are no longer alive. And to find ways to justify that. And then at the same time, to just pray about it. Mm. Oh, we're just mm. going to pray for him. Oh, you know. Well, you, I mean, I, I believe in miracles, but prayer is not going to bring this individual back. And prayer also does not, is not any work that we are doing to end racism in our religious spaces. But a lot of folks, that's, that's the immediate response. And it's a good, honest response. I mean, I'm not, of course, not minimizing at all the power of prayer. It's a good, honest response, but that is the least that we can do. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah. some people stop there at, at the absolute least that they can do. What I see now, though, is mostly the silence. 
And to me, that hurts more than some of the overt racist acts that we, you know, traditionally think about. To, to be just quiet, to just, and I know sometimes it's people may not know what to say, and that's why that silence is there. So I try to keep that separate, but say something. You know what I mean? Like, come just, just say, just say, I don't know what to say, but I know I need to do something. That's better than just not acknowledging anything. So, um, but again, we're in this space where, where we're praying together, you know, with our congregation or, um, you know, we've held a vigil that doesn't erase the true acts of racism that are happening and that lack of doing true work is allowing this to continue and, and the responsibility that individuals have to, to help actively end racism. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, there's so much, so much good stuff there that you just said. I, the last part, we talk a lot on this podcast about the power of the sacred and the power of the pulpit and the power of religion, especially in the Bible Belt where we are. Mm -hmm. And then when it comes to something like this, when it comes to Black Lives Matter or when it comes to, you know, police brutality or Black men being killed, you know, that that all of a sudden that that power isn't being used for mm -hmm. that. You know, it's mm -hmm. there's so much power contained there that could be used for good. And to hear you talk about how not using that power is so hurtful for you. Yeah, because and, and it's just what you said, because I mean, every Sunday pastors stand in the position of power and authority and yes, through the Holy Spirit, but dictate our lives to us. Mm -hmm. So why do you not use that same power to dictate how we should respond, you know, to racism. So um, it, it just, be, it, it makes zero sense. It yeah. becomes so hard to wrap my head around um, how we All pick and choose. places where so many pastors, not Jill, but where so many pastors <laughs> seek power and seek to influence us and why this is one mm -hmm. that is so often ignored, why this mm -hmm. is one that's so kind of hands off is baffling to me. Yep. Um, well, and I might not seek power, but I do seek to influence. <laughs> <I will say. laughs> but, but it is, it's, it's powerful to, to hear you talk about silence, Emma, because I know in, uh, in many of my circles with uh, my clergy peers, there is this, this driving force of how can we, how can we respond? How can we stand in solidarity with other Black and Indigenous and people of color and, and support to, to call out the, the sin of racism, not just as individuals, but systematically mm -hmm. and structurally, because, because like the white church has been so complicit in racism and the ways that clergy have struggled to be able to talk about these things because they talk about pastoring a red church or a blue church mm -hmm. or a purple church and like hard eye roll on my part here. I have to say, cause <laughs> mm -hmm. like, so a red church would be a conservative church or a Republican church and a blue Democrat and purple would be the mixed kind. And, and the, the frustration of, of white clergy that say, oh, I pastor a purple church. So I have to be careful what I say in the pulpit. And it's a preservation of, of power and stature and a mm -hmm. concern of, well, if I, upset somebody, then the money's not going to come in the church and things like that. And the ways in which the structure gets in the way of the divine of, of sharing God's love and the building of God's beloved community, just that silence can be deafening sometimes. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Can imagine. And all of those isms are generated from a preservation of power, mm-hmm. right? Like that's kind of what they're all in place to do. So another thing you said, Emma, that just really struck me that the, I'll pray about that. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, as you said, prayer is not going to bring a dead person back to life. Prayer is not going to dismantle these structures that are, you know, built into the fabric of our country. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in the mental health world, we refer to that as spiritual bypass, just this, mm-hmm. I'm not going to do the work. I'm not going to really engage in anything beyond this spiritual thing that I'm doing. And I'm just going to expect God to handle it. Right. And yeah. how damaging that can be. It is. Um, and and it becomes this double-edged sword because, again, we believe in the power of prayer. I mean, you know, we're, so it, when to say that, it's, um, I'm, again, not minimizing any of that. But you just got to do, get your hands dirty. <laughs> you just yeah. got to do something else um, in this particular situation. Um, and again, to some, and so, sometimes that that feels like a, um, you're just kind of brushing this issue, uh, you know, under the rug, um, like it's, it's going to just go away. It hasn't gone away for 400 years in this country. So I don't see it happening overnight either, but yeah. Yeah. You know, Jill mentioned the white church. I wonder if you have any thoughts, Emma, on why church is still one of the most segregated places in our country. Yeah, I have too many thoughts on this, Paula. Um, <laughs> so, yes. Yeah, so you want to hear them all? There, there, there have been a, so historically, right? So we, we, you know, we don't need to go down, go down that road. But historically, we know why there's black churches and white churches. And we also know why that is is wrong too, right? I mean, you know, and even though it still exists and there, and we're going to get to the benefits of it, we also know how that can be perceived as wrong because we're all again God's children, made in His image. But at the same time, when I think about the structure that particularly the black church, the role that the black church has taken in the black community over year over the years, as Yes, the spiritual house, but it was also the community, you know, information center. It also was um, the education hub. It was the political hub. It was, you know, some churches have the, the church nurse, so it became the health. I mean, the Black church became everything in Black communities, and it still is in many ways. In many communities, the Black church is still, you know, if it didn't get announced in announcements, it's not happening. It's not real. If it's not the church <laughs> bulletin, you know, don't worry about it. So it, it very much is still a real thing. We had a conversation. So my church is an African-American church, but we had some conversations and we're a very small congregation about combining with another church, small congregation, same belief, you know, um, pat- pattern of belief. And, um, but it was an all white church. And so we had some Mm -hmm. conversation about that. And my response was, no, I don't think that we should do this. And why? Because at the 11 o'clock hour on Sunday morning is the one hour, two hours a week that I get to be 100% authentically black without mm-hmm. having to explain or justify or hide or cover up or pretend at all to be who I am. Mm-hmm. And I'm surrounded with other people who are experiencing that same freedom for just those hour and a half, two hours a week. 
And to be in a space that has been historically the only place that Black people have been able to exist 100% as themselves, to now have to share that space who's someone who may tolerate it, respect it, accept it, but will truly never understand what my shout is about, right? What my clap is about, because they've not had the last six days that I have, that I'm bringing into this space to release, to be recharged around people who fully understand exactly what, what I mean without saying a word. Black folks have to do a lot of explaining in life every day. Mm. Um, it takes a lot of preparation every day to be a Black person in this country. And um, I give the example, and we were doing a talk with a group of um, students earlier this week, and one of the students talked about what he has to go through before he goes into the store. So he makes sure he um, doesn't put his hands in his pocket. If he's wearing a sweatshirt, he doesn't have his hoodie on. He has his money out so he doesn't have to dig in his pockets when he goes into the store. He doesn't walk around and look too suspicious. Um, you know, all of, and he hasn't even gone in the store yet. This is just preparing to walk into the store. So then you go into the store. Again, you make sure you're not ducking into corners, you know, for any, for any reason, even if you're looking for something that's in the back, you don't go, you don't do that. You make sure you keep your head up, you know, all of these things for a bag of chips. And then you walk out the store. Well, you want to make sure, you know, if you're Walmart or somewhere, you have your receipt in your hand to show that you have proof that, that you've, you've bought this. Then you walk, you're walking out into the space in the parking lot. You're watching your surroundings because we live in a dangerous world. All of this to go into the store. That is what a Black person goes through. And it's just an automatic checklist. No one other than someone who looks like me will understand what that release is like during those two hours on Sunday. So that's the benefit, right? Is that for a little bit of time, and this actually goes back to slavery. So we know, you know, Sunday was the, the off day. And of course, big air quotes for that for slaves. And they were able to, to worship as they wanted to. They were able to prepare the food, which is why we have the Sunday dinner is a big tradition in the African-American community. So I mean, this is so deeply rooted in our hour of freedom, um, you know, to be who it is that we are. And then our spirituality, our worship is different. The way that we came into Christianity is much different. It was a way to, to escape this bondage and, and to pull us out. And so our worship is, is about overcoming. It's about getting through, moving on. And it's not always as celebratory as white worship is sometimes. It's um, sometimes a harder worship. It's a heavier sermon sometimes. And that, that's our experience. It's, it's not good, it's not bad, it's just what it is here in this country and we've learned to navigate that. And then to, to think of, again, pairing with a non-Black church or to bringing these denominations together. We know that it can be done. We see inter, interracial churches all the time, but the worship, the sermons, the, the music is so removed from Black history so removed from our entrance into Christianity, so we lose 
so much, so much of ourselves, you know, in, in that. And then there still becomes the explaining, you know, of, of, well, why did that hit you? You know, or, or why, why are you worshiping this way? There still becomes that explaining. There still becomes um, having to check yourself and making sure that you're fitting into whatever mold it is that this interracial church has, has created. Not a bad thing either. You know, so it, it depends on, on what strikes you, but there are some just cultural benefits for the survival of Black community in some ways to still, again, have have the Black church. And um, I can talk a lot, you know this. So, but I learned this <laughs> I love in, the, in the Black church. So growing up in the AME church, um, being able to public speaking, oratorical contests were a huge deal. We did Easter speeches, you did um, Christmas speeches, and you had to memorize these things. And if you got up there with your paper reading, if you're like four, it was okay. But once you hit us, it was like, oh, no, baby, you need to know how, <laughs> you know, how to read, how to talk in front of people, and how to present yourself a certain way. That's a part of survival in this society, I have to know as a black person, code switching, I have to know how I can talk in front of my white colleagues versus my black colleagues, um, if I'm in a mixed crowd, and I learned that in church, I would not have learned that in a white church that would not have been pressed upon me because one, I wouldn't have the, the lady who's come, sister Cox is, is her name who really um, just she was she never went easy on me when it came to my public speaking ever went easy on me. Um, I was quoting my Angelo poems at 10 in front of the church. I mean, it was, she never went easy on me, but because of her, I can talk in front of anybody now. And she knew and understood the importance of delivery. And I would not have got that uh, other places. And so many of those lessons, how, how to carry myself as a black person, as a black woman, how to exist in this society and still how to pray and believe God through it all. I learned that in a black church and that's how I survive. That's how I survive um, as a 37 year old black woman in the South. And I was learning those lessons at four, you know, at, at, at four. So um, I'm gonna stop there. Cause I'll keep going. But, so that's my response to the, why are we so segregated? I, I, so, I so appreciate that. Sorry, Paula, I cut you off. Go ahead. No, go ahead. No, go ahead, Jill. I was just going to say, I so appreciate that I've, I've come around in a lot of ways in understanding the importance of that, that time. I served a congregation in a rural part of the country and there were two ministerial associations and one was the white ministerial association mm -hmm. and one was mm -hmm. the black ministerial association. And I was not welcome at the white ministerial association as wow. a female minister mm -hmm. and the black ministerial association could not have been more kind and hospitable and welcoming and just wonderful to me. I was happened to be the only female minister in the area and they just, the kindness and hospitality that was extended to me was so wonderful, but that what you were sharing was really impounded on me that it, it's not always appropriate for us to you know, do a pulpit switch where a white preacher goes into a black church and a mm -hmm. black preacher goes into a white church and that there are these opportunities to be in proximity with one another and to, to share in diversity and to build relationships and that having those separate safe spaces are also okay too. Mm -hmm. 
So I was just going to say, I love that you brought up code switching because that's something that I feel like is really helpful for white people to learn and understand about. And it seems like a really good run on the mental health road too, Paula, if you want to talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I think you you explained kind of what you mean, even in, as you were describing it, Emmett, but do you want to talk about that a little bit for people who may not be familiar with that term, code switching, what yeah. that is like for you? Sure, absolutely. So co- code switching, general way to explain it, it's, it's knowing your audience. It's knowing what words to use, what body language to use, you know, how to express yourself that, that a particular audience will receive it. When you break it down racially, Black folks talk to Black folks a certain way. It's, it's just what it is. Um, the, the way that I speak to my Black friends, to my family, I, can, I, I could not get away with talking to white colleagues that way. Not that it's a bad way. It's just the slang is different. The, the meaning behind the words are different. The looks are different. Black women can have a whole conversation with our eyes and not say a word <laughs> and know exactly. What, I mean, the, one of my favorite things, I'll be in the store and see something just crazy happen and I'll catch another black woman's eyes and we say it all and just keep on going. And, and, and that's, that's a part of the code, right? I mean, that that's the code that we follow. And um, so it's just, again, learning what way to express yourself is most appropriate, again, depending on your audience. For people of color, that is, it's, it's every day. It's hard every single day. Um, and you switch back and forth dozens of times a day. I tell people all the time, the work that I do is challenging. Yes. I mean, you know, it's, 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 um, it's just challenging work. However, on my worst work day, the hardest part of my day is the code switching. The most exhausting part of my day is the code switching. I call it um, mind Olympics because I'm constantly, before I say anything, replaying it two or three times in my head, depending on, you know, who I'm talking to, what space I'm in, trying to understand how they will receive it. I mean, all of this before I get out a whole sentence that will wear you slap out, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And for some people, the way that I explain, if you're in another country and you know, there's the language barrier, obviously, and you're trying to understand and learn that language, you're exhausted um, because you're, you're thinking of in English and you're flipping through the book to say it then in Spanish, you know, or whatever it is that you're doing. That's what people of color are doing every single day. Um, in this country. Kamala Harris um, got a lot of attention, of course, during one of her debates with Mike Pence. And that's when a lot of folks started talking about, for lack of better words, the mind Olympics and the code switching that she was having to do. Um, And her facial expressions. she got a lot of heat from the white community about her facial expressions and how it was disrespectful or, you know, rude or angry black woman, all of these things that, that people say, and Black people are like, no, that's regular. We do this every single day. I mean, you know, it's, it's how we can express ourselves without using the words, without showing the frustration of not being understood or, again, that, that justification that, that we constantly have to do. But it's just, it's just a, a mind Olympics. It's a constant, constant part of your day to process and think and then again, depending on the spaces that you're in, it's already hard enough to be a Black person or a person of color 
in certain spaces at certain levels. And then to have to, again, process how you're going to be received, how you wear your clothes, how you wear your hair, what color your nails are, you know, all of these things that my white counterparts don't have to think about at all, um, just because I have a, you know, certain level of education that then qualifies me to be in a certain space, you know, and, and just all this extra that, that goes with it, that we have to think about and process on a everyday 24 seven basis. And I think our listeners are pretty savvy and know this, but I just want to be clear, like that's what we mean when we say privilege, that Jill and I don't have to constantly do those mental gymnastics. Mm -hmm. We don't constantly have to do that code switching. We don't constantly have to think about how we're going to come across and, you know, use the term, use the word exhausting. And that's what I just kept thinking as you were describing, as I heard the emotion, as you described the safety of your congregation. And I think that's, what's again, important for our white listeners to understand is how necessary having a safe space like that is Mm -hmm. and why, you know, if you're at a workplace that has a group specifically for people of color, that's not racist, right? That's necessary. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You want to say, do you want to say, oh, sis, yeah. Um, and, and that becomes, uh, I mean, it's a whole other people do see whenever there's this, this space for a particular group of people as old and they're, they're being racist or old, they're, you know, excluding me the whole rest of the space is for you. I'm just trying to get this one little room from 10 to 11 to be for me, but everything else is, you know, is for you on a regular basis where where you're free to just be expressive and not have to worry about anything. So um, sometimes we will get students and faculty and staff of color together on, um, you know, just for a 30 minute, just breather. And the, the, the deep breaths that happen, mm-hmm. the, the sighs that, that happen, particularly for our students who sometimes are the only person in their class who looks like them for, you know, the whole day or things of that mm-hmm. nature, just to come and sit in a room and see someone that looks like you, it's just a deep breath. And I do that myself. I mean, I can go all day and not see another person of color unless a student comes up here. So, you know, during the summer or something when, when it's, you know, our campus is very, very light as far as, you know, the population here, um, not very many people, it'll just be me in the mirror if I want to see, you know, a person of color. And, and so when I do, um, this, I'm, I'm jumping around this took, so I, before I came to here, I lived in Iowa. And in a town where there were less than 50 Black people. And um, the town was actually about 10,000 people or so. So for that part of the country, actually a fairly decent size city. And I remember being in the Walmart and I saw another Black person. And I had been in Iowa for mm, maybe, you know, a couple weeks or so. And I just wanted to hug them. Like, I, I, I just... Mm. I. I and I never felt that before. Um, just this immediate need to connect. And there are a few faculty, actually two faculty and staff members that you know I would see on a pretty regular basis on campus. But when I would be out, I, I you know I, I just wouldn't. And I just and that sticks with me um, on particularly when I relate to students on campus um, of color, especially. I know what that's like 
to, to be in this space um, and to never see someone who you can just look across the room and connect with at a certain level, you know, at a certain level. So th- there's a lot to be said for those inclusive spaces that allow people and celebrate the time that these groups are able to get together because it's really a survival um, method. It's really um, it's sometimes a strategy planning session on, on how we're going to keep pushing through. And we have to have those. And again, it's not excluding the majority population at all. It's just acknowledging that we just need 30 minutes to be. Um, and, and, and that needs to be okay. Yeah. Because those, that one and a half or two hours that you describe on Sunday morning for you is what we as white people get to live in. Yeah. And so we really take it for granted. And we, you know, hearing things like this just is is another reminder and we need to be constantly reminded about how important it is to preserve those spaces or provide those spaces or at least understand those spaces. Yeah. Um, because some people do want to be in a more integrated church or a more integrated, you know, place of worship and that's available too, but we also have to understand why that doesn't always happen. Yep. And, and also, that we can be in a fully integrated space and people love and respect and celebrate. I mean, you value all of those things, but there's still going to be the need for, I mean, it's in a marriage, you know, in a relationship, sometimes you just want to take a bath and close the door. You know, <laughs> you just need that little bit of time to yourself. And, and it's the same, you, and you, it's no slight against your, your partner, your children. It, you just need that 20 minutes, you know, to, to come back to yourself. Um, and that's what it is. We can be fully integrated, but we still have to respect the need for, for like people on whatever basis we're using to judge that, to come together and to just be. Um, yeah. And it's, it's not a, a slight against anybody. It's not um, ditching anybody or, you know, ignore, it's none of that. It's just giving people that, that space to, to just be. And for the mental health road, you know, I just would, to, to any counselors listening or counselors in training, you know, understanding, understanding that if you're a white counselor that has a, a, a client of color, but also understanding why a client of color might prefer a counselor of color or really might, you know, we can have, I, I like to think that I'm trying to develop cultural empathy, but I still can never, ever, ever know what it's like for you, Emma. And right. so understanding that and understanding the limitations we have to enter someone else's experience and um, to provide those opportunities and referrals if a client wants it and to maybe even offer that, you know, mm-hmm. not, not to say we can't work interracially with different clients, but also just to recognize why that might be important for some of our clients. Mm-hmm. Yep. No, absolutely. And the, the, the flip piece, and you, you said it actually, Paula, is no, it's not a personal attack. You know what I mean? It's not, you're not a good counsel, you know, any of those things, but you said, you know, just recognizing, yes, you can have some empathy, but it's still never going to be to the same level. Um, yeah. It's, it just won't, it just won't get to that level of just the true shared experience that, that um, people of color, black folks, any other, any of the isms, you know, are, are going to have. So when I think a little bit about, um, I'm jumping onto roadblocks, Paula, so rein me in if I'm, I'm moving in a different direction, but I think about what you've, what you've said, Emma, about the ways in which it's exhausting 
having to code switch and having to do all of these things. And uh, I can imagine particularly for people of color who are, are the only one in their arena who maybe now, or maybe more, you know, longer than just now have a whole bunch of white people saying, I need to fix racism. So you tell me what I need to do. And the weight of white people who are used to comfort and privilege and those of uh, those of us white folks who are disturbed by the racial inequities in the world who want to snap our fingers and solve mm-hmm. racism mm-hmm. by reading this book and putting this Facebook post up mm-hmm. and and look, I have a black friend too. And like you about to get an amen. On what you're <laughs> Absolutely. Well, yes. So there's got to be a level of exhaustion too in the in the work that people of color are being asked to do to make white people feel better about it. Mm-hmm. Will you talk a little bit about that? Oh, I, child. Yeah, I can talk a lot about it. So. <laughs> What you're saying is so interesting on on so many levels. I actually just started um, looking into what we need in this social justice work. We have to have white advocates and allies. We we have to have that. But there's also this level of regression that having our white allies and advocates causes. And that goes into some of the, the white privilege, some of the white fragility, some all of these things. So in order for one thing, what I'm going to get to, I'm going to answer what you're saying, but I, I'm going to take a long way to get there. <laughs> but, um, here for it, here for it. So what, what's happening is that we're seeing, yes, we are seeing that white folks are um, rightfully so bothered, concerned, and very genuine, you know, about their efforts in um, being anti-racist. So that's, again, putting that out there first, because there's no slight there against the work that's being done. But also seeing that white folks are bringing things to the forefront, using their privilege that really aren't that deep to Black people right now, because we have some bigger issues going on that that we're fighting. Mm. But what happens is because white folks are coming from this point of privilege, making this an issue, then now it becomes a part of my plight as well. I have to take this on because I have you fighting for me up here, but now you've added some something else onto my plate that maybe I'm, I'm not on right now. I'm, I'm just not here right at this moment because I'm worried about, you know, police brutality. I'm worried about, um, you know, poverty. I'm worried about kids not eating. I'm worried about all of these things. And I really don't care about the images that are being hung up. It's really not important, but, but that's some of the things that folks are, are really focusing on. And it leads to racial battle fatigue where black folks, people of color are just tired of having to represent what, what matters to us, take on what a white person says should matter to us, then explaining again ourselves to, to the white person while making sure we don't hurt them or offend them mm-hmm. or, you know, and teaching them, no, you're, you didn't, you're not responsible for slavery. You didn't have slaves, but yes, you do benefit you. Know, and just going through this whole process and the amount of time and energy and effort that takes when we try to make sure the kids down the street got something to eat, you know what I mean? It, th- those are the big things that, that we're, that we're worried about. All of that coupled with as a white person who is, a tr- again, true ally, true advocate, but you can say, I just need a break. I'm going on vacation and I'm just not going to deal with this right now. And you can go and exist and be white and happy and enjoy your trip at the beach. 
I can never take a vacation from, mm -hmm. from this. Mm -hmm. If I go to the beach, I'm still going to have to deal with being black and what all that comes with being black in a different space. So mm -hmm. before I decide to go to the beach, I'm looking up how many black people live in the area. I'm looking up how many black owned businesses are in there to see if it's even a, even a beach that I'm going to be welcomed at mm -hmm. that, that me walking down, you know, the, the beach or checking into the hotel, just me and my blackness is not a disturbance naturally, right? You know, I don't have the privilege of really ever going away or going in the house and saying, I'm going to turn off the news because I just can't deal with what's happening. Because I look across the dinner table at my partner, who's a 6'4 black man. And, you know, I look at my nephew, who's a black boy, who I, I can't ever turn this off. And then when a white person comes back from the vacation and they're refreshed and, you know, they're good to go and they're ready to do this work now, since I've been doing this work for the two weeks, you've been gone and I'm tired and I'm worn out. But now you've come with this whole other list of things that are now put on a person of color to champion and make it my issue and everything as well. So what I wish, and I said all that to finally say, what I wish that folks would, would do is to use that privilege to open the door for me but let me come and tell you what it is that I need. Let me come and sit, give me your space at the table so I can tell the larger group what it is. Don't, don't filter what my concern is through your privilege, through your guilt, through your fragility, and then relay it to, to the people, you know what I mean? The people in charge or what, mm -hmm. whatever it is that we're trying to do. That, that takes away my voice um, because again, it's being filtered so many times. It's being processed through how you feel about it. And that's just not authentic. It, you know, you're, you're not getting to, to, what, to what it really is. So we have to work together. We have to have people from all walks of life, but we need the majority culture to understand sometimes the unnecessary pressure and how that really is wearing out the progress, wearing out the black folks, slowing the progress of what it is that we can really be doing because we're having to stop so many times along the way. So walk beside us, get behind us, but you don't have to be out in front throwing stuff back, you know, for, for us to then pick up and, and deal with. Yeah. So that's, my thoughts. Yeah. No, oh, thank you. Yeah. That's it's, it's a roadblock for me. It's a road rage moment for me too, in that I have been in some conferences recently about unconscious bias and mm -hmm. things like that. And looking at, um, the book cast by Isabel Wilkerson, mm -hmm. I believe I'm, I'm using the word right. And this conference I was in recently, we're talking about the different cast system cast being something that you can't change. Mm -hmm. And there was a, a group of white men at this conference that kept insisting that there should be a cast of poor white people because that's a category. And the, the need for white people to have this extra category, the need for white people to have this extra distinction and not getting the fact that this isn't about white people. This mm -hmm. is about understanding the, the ways in which socioeconomic status and the color of your skin has an impact on the way that you live in the world mm -hmm. and the way that you interact with other people. And that when we think about caste systems, we're inclined to think about India and America has a pretty 
severe caste system. Mm -hmm. And you know, what you just said, sometimes when we look at, I think part of our issue as why particularly racism and so many isms keep going is when we think about these, we look elsewhere. We don't, the caste system is here. The, you know, the third world level poverty is here. I mean, in in some spaces, but we don't do that. This, you know, and so we just remove ourselves so much from, from the issues that we have and just want to look to the other people and blame other people. It's, it's right here. If you really knew your neighbor, you'd realize they probably got a few of these on the checklist, you know, that, that they're dealing with that you don't need to look to India, you don't need to look to African countries, you can look right here and see that we have all of this happening right here in our own country. We've talked a lot quite a bit about the religion road, and we've kind of bounced around. But you know, I've heard you talk in some of my classes and some other places about some mental health, mental health specific things. Um, so talk a little bit about the mental health road here, Emma, both how racism impacts mental health, how racism in the church might particularly impact mental health, just anything that comes up for you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, racism is a disease that, um, has infected, this country, again, you know, at, at, at every level, there, there's not one thing that you could call out that we could not determine systemic race, you know, and see the pattern of systemic racism in, in this space. And to know that in every space, again, including the church that you're going to walk into, you could potentially experience just direct racism, indirect, you know, racism, that's a lot to think about. That's a lot to carry around every day to think about, I mean, just the anxiety, right? To know that when you walk into a space, if the person in front, we're in the South, you hold the door for the person behind you, right? So if you walk into the, the bank and the person in front of you doesn't hold the door, is it because they just didn't see you? Is it because, um, you know, they, they just were in a hurry or is it because your skin is black or brown? And so you have to think and process that. So now, you know, and you're doing that constantly, things like that constantly. And so you have this level of anxiety that you just live with of wondering, where do I fit into this? How, how was my worth? Where's my value in all of this? And then you, you know, it gets to some additional levels, you know, you, you reach certain levels of what the progress or the check mark should be. And what, what I mean by that, growing up as a black girl, you're taught certain things to do. You, you don't get pregnant before you're married. You don't get on welfare. You go to college, you um, wear your hair a certain way. You, you speak a certain way. You wear your clothes a certain way. My nails shouldn't be a certain length. All of this. So I'm seen as a good one, as I'm seen as a different type of black person growing up. That's constantly in your head. So you don't, it's just normal. It's, it's just, yeah, it's, it's, it's just normal. But then you have the moment, personal story, you have the moment where you've done every check mark, everything you're supposed to do. And someone just simply, you're sitting in your car going to make a right turn and someone's making a left turn and they scream out, you nigger, just scream it out. 
I've done everything I'm supposed to do. I've done every check mark. I've done everything that my parents, society, my church told me that if I did this, people would see me as something different. And it doesn't happen. So then, well, what's my worth? You know, what, what's, what's my value? Then what do I have to do to be seen as human in, in, this, in this space? And if that happens once in your life, okay, you can check it off your list, you throw it away. But racist, these, these racist experience happen over and over and over. And they start when, you know, when we're kids. And so just to constantly, when you finally take a break and realize this isn't normal, this isn't how it's supposed to be, this isn't how my white friends are, are living, it just brings so much into question. And then as a Black person, mental health, um, we pray about it. You know what I mean? We go to the church house and we go when the doors open and we just going to pray and oil and lay hands. And then we're supposed to be okay, but it doesn't work that way. Get you, I tell people all the time, get you a therapist and get you Jesus. Between the two of them, you will be good to go. And so I believe that a hundred percent, but that's just a new thing in the black community. And it's like, um, you know, if you're sitting outside, you know, in the summer and you get one mosquito bite, then you just kind of swat it, you know, and you're good to go and you can keep enjoying your evening outside. But if you keep getting bit, you're going to pack up and go inside. You know, it's, it's not worth it. I'm done. And so that's what happens with, with racism is that it's, it's not necessarily this one big thing that happens that just impacts how you value yourself and, and how you see yourself ever fitting into the system here. It's all of these little things that happen every single day that cause you to question your life's work, um, you know, who, who, who you are. If you can have Michelle Obama, Barack Obama, the two most educated, you know, presidential family, and people are questioning who they, I mean, what more? Golly, I mean, what more can they do to prove that they are just as good as their white counterparts? What, what more, what more do we have to, we can't walk on water, only Jesus, only one who, we can't do that, but it feels like it takes that level to prove our value and to prove that, that we have a space here. And, you know, we talk about self-esteem and building up, you know, our children, but then at the same time, whenever we build up that black pride, it's not a white hate. It's just being proud of who you are because the world has told you you're not anything for so long. Then now black folks are racist or now, you know, you're, and so to never again, be able to even celebrate who you are, then now you're, well, maybe I'm wrong. (laughs) Maybe I shouldn't be proud. And so just that constant packing of stuff over and over just truly takes a toll. And I'll go even one step back. It's more, it's coming up a lot more um, in some studies than it has in years past, but um, post-traumatic slave syndrome. And it's studying the multi-generational trauma that's been passed down from slavery and how, you know, 400 years later, we're still carrying this and how it has impacted our mental health, our overall health. There's some studies now that are even um, looking at the DNA 
and how the trauma of the slave passage shifted or affected um, DNA in slaves and then how that has been passed down. So Black folks have been dealing with mental health for a long time, mental health issues for a long time. But when you're in the fields picking cotton, you can't worry about if you feel bad. When you are um, waiting to be told if you're free, waiting to be told if you can go to school, waiting to be told if you're three-fifths of a human or a whole human, waiting to be told if you can vote, waiting to be, you don't have time to feel bad. You got to keep going. You, you can't worry about feeling anxious or depressed or, you know, dealing with trauma or talking about these experiences. You just keep going. Um, and you're modeling this keep goingness for your kids, but you're also passing down that trauma. You're also passing down those mental health issues, but we just learn to keep going because stopping is not an option. It's mm -hmm. not an option. So then I switch over when I, you know, thinking about the, the privilege, and that's funny to use that word when talking about Black folks, but the privilege that we now have as Black people in this generation to be able to pause and seek mental health, because we've never been able to do that before. So to have jobs that offer the health care, you know, all of those things, to have Black therapists, to have all of all, and I use all loosely, all of these things now that grant us this privilege to finally deal with what's been passed down to us for four or five generations but to not have a model of how you talk through these things, to not have any experience of feeling and processing and going through the motions of getting better because we've been on, you got to keep your head down and keep going and make it through this. So while this privilege exists, we don't necessarily have the tools to maximize the, this privilege. So there's just this, this gap, you know, this, this lag that's just existing that I'm thankful in the Black community, we're taking our mental health and the trauma a lot more seriously and talking about it. And you see, are seeing churches, especially during this pandemic, shift from true online worships or Bible studies to more just conversations about, you know, how we're doing, how, how we're managing this, how, how we're feeling about all of these things. And that's step one. And that's good that the church, you know, is taking that role because we, we do still seek the church for so many things. But it, it's just when you think about all of that, so the post-traumatic, you know, slave syndrome, when you think about, again, the, the years of history of, of your whole life being dictated to you at every step, your existence being decided um, by government policy at every single step, when, you know, you, you you see somebody who looks like you um, laying on the ground with the police officer's knee on their neck for, for multiple minutes when, when you're, you know, going into the school system and you don't see anybody who looks like you and you're being told that the pipeline from kindergarten to prison is more than the pipeline from, you know, kindergarten to college, all of that stuff, it's something every single day. And it's just layers and layers and layers that you start to internalize. You can only shake so much off before you start to internalize and develop th these mental health issues, you know, the, the, these concerns. And we're dealing with that in, in the Black community. And of course, then that impacts everything, your families, your job, you know, um, your community involved, it impacts every single thing. So it becomes this never ending cycle of how do we fix this stuff? You know, how, how do we ever find our feet long enough when it just keeps on coming um, to, to get strong enough as a whole to really tackle some of these issues, again, particularly the mental health.
and golly, I'm gonna be quiet, but I didn't even talk about just black men specifically, you know, and, and what those mental health concerns are and how the years of history and trauma impacts just them even be able to seek mental health, you know, cause then that means they're weak and you know, I don't have any problems, I'm good to go. Um, and I gotta be the man and just all of these things that just keep layering up every, every you know, every, every single day, every single day. Oh, there, there's so much there. There's, wow. We're, we're going to keep going, but we're also going to have to have you back because <laughs> there's, there's so much there I want to dig into that I think each point you made could be an hour long conversation. Mm-hmm. I just, to think about, to put it in that historical context of where we are in, in being able to possibly take a breath and, and be allowed to engage in self-examination after that anxiety and that vigilance being normalized for so long, Mm -hmm. just that being life and being normal. And I like a metaphor that comes up for me to think if this, to help me kind of conceptualize it is, you know, when college students so often get through the semester, take their exams, go home for break and then get sick when they're home over break, mm-hmm. you know, this mm-hmm. phenomenon of college students and, and somehow they were able to keep going through all that stressful time. And then when they're able to breathe, their body just kind of falls mm-hmm. apart. Mm-hmm. That seems to almost be a metaphor for what you're describing about where we are, even though we're not where we need to be, where there's mm-hmm. still so much swirling around, but this being able after being in survival mode for so long to take a breath and engage in some of that self-examination, the rush that must come up and the flood of all this stuff that has been historically and society has suppressed for so long. I, I haven't thought about it in that way of, of what that, all that must be coming up just systemically. Mm -hmm. That's, Mm -hmm. I'm going to be wrapping my brain around that for a long time. Yeah, no, it's, um, I was talking to my sister and we were, this is during the election time and, you know, just, just all of that. And um, after the inauguration, you know, there started to be a lot of reports of people sleeping better and, um, you know, just, yeah, me, I was definitely, I'm one of them, you know, just sleeping better and, and just, you know, less anxiety and all those other things. And so we got into this kind of conversation and yes, we had the, the craziness of, you know, just what we've been experiencing, but then also, for people in marginalized populations, you, you, you didn't know for those four years what, you know, mark of the pen was going to shift your life. So you were always on edge, just worrying, you know, something going to be signed today that says I can't exist in this certain way. Is something going to be signed today that takes away, you know, j- just something. And, um, and I'm saying that's how Black people have lived, is just constantly waiting for that next step to say what I can do. You know, I mean, there's policies right now that are still being determined, is it legal or illegal to fire a black person because of the way they're wearing their hair? So I'm waiting for the government to tell me it's okay to wear my hair the way I want to. So Mm -hmm. every part of a black person's life is determined by the mark of a pen. And just again, that, that way, and again, I mean, LGBTQ, so many people are, are, you know, going through this and just that anxiety of just waiting to see what was going to happen today. Can I live today? Can I just be me today? And, you know, no president's going to get it all right, you know, doing this stuff, but at least I know that when I wake up tomorrow, it's going to be okay for me to be black. 
that at least I know that there's not been a mark of the pen that has tried to take that away from, from me. And so I can go to sleep, not worrying about that. And, and that was, that was a real thought, uh, you know, what, what rights was this, you know, going to be tried to be taken away from someone who exists in, in the skin that I do. So, yeah. And, and the power of the government. And as we pull this back into kind of the mental health road with the religion road, and I'm just thinking about everything you're describing, this constant barrage of your self-worth, this constant having to be vigilant and this underlying anxiety, when we add religion over that, when Mm -hmm. it's a religious system attacking your self-worth or telling you Mm -hmm. that you're, that's, that's what we talk about a lot on the podcast is how things, bad things get even amped up more when you say God is on my side Mm -hmm. doing this, when I'm using God to discriminate against you. Yep. So back, we kind of talked about it, you know, a little bit earlier is that how people, you know, will switch those, those scriptures, you know, to, to make what it is that, that they want to say, right. And you, black folks, I mean, God is, is, is God alone. You don't question what he does, you know, the good, the bad, it's what it is. Um, and it's, I mean, it's blasphemy. You get kicked out of grandma house. I mean, house, you don't, you don't talk about the Lord and, and that's what it is. So if you grow up with that and then you're hearing and until you develop your own, you know, sense of kind of discernment, but you're hearing these other people use God who, again, we're taught to fear. I'm well, you know, fear, um, don't question none of that. Well, that, I mean, then what's my preacher telling me? You know what I mean? It's just it's all these things coupled with when it comes from when it's coming from a white person. As a black person, we know we're, we're taught, we, we experience that whiteness is better, that we're automatically inferior because of the color of our skin. So whatever a white person says carries more weight in, or used to carry more weight in many ways than what a person of color said, similar with the man versus, versus a woman. And that's historically taught to us. So when you have this powerful concept of God being told or talked about by this powerful white man, then who am I to question that? Mm. What in the world, you know, who, what can I say? Those are the two most powerful existers telling me, you know, that what I, and, um, and that's again, another kind of race and religion crossover, you know, there, um, and that historical concept of, and, and, you know, of course, Jesus got blue, brown, I mean, was blue eyes, white is what, you know, the images that, you know, that we see. The, the um, Breck hair. I think we, we always used to make fun of the Breck hair, Jesus, the Breck shampoo. Yeah, just, yeah. <laughs> you know, and so you, you see that. And so all of that just shapes your, your views on so many things. Because Jesus was not a white guy. Right. Well, yes. <laughs> yes. Um, and then, but, and, and then and this is not anything we were supposed to talk about, but then you get to, you know, and so that debate that Jesus, you know, is, is a person of color and then how people are so willing to argue and fight. And I mean, go tooth and nail over the color of, it's, it's all being, you know, you know, all of this. And so people are just so ready to defend the whiteness of Christianity and that, that normalcy and that power. Um, and that is still a way to, again, make people of color feel less than because our God, our Jesus doesn't even look like us mm-hmm. on their pictures, you know, things like that. And all, all of that is, is a construct of, of just 
power that that exists. Well, and just the way that we, the power of the pulpit is used to control the narrative. Like, you know, I, I will say as a religious leader, I'm, I'm always dependent upon the Holy Spirit to give me the words that I believe need to be preached from the pulpit, whether it's the physical pulpit or the dining room table of the screen that's going to record <laughs> my sermon to offer to folks. And, and there is, there's some work that I have to do to channel what the Holy Spirit is giving. And when religious leaders are saying, well, we're not going to talk about politics or we're not going to talk about about that, uh, the ways in which scripture gets pulled to say, oh, well, we're, we're in this world, but we're not of this world. And so the shelving of mm-hmm. matters of justice, the shelving of talking about things like racism, because that's what people are comfortable talking about. And that's another layer of power that gets abused because mm-hmm. to not talk about it, white people have the comfort of being able to take a vacation or to not talk about it in church. And that's not afforded to our siblings of color. Right. Yeah. I think you took us to our who's driving category of just, you know, who is, who is benefiting from these, this maintaining of power in this way, who is in, I don't know if you're muted, Jill. Jill just said white people. White people. Yeah. <laughs> I was, it ain't me. I'm, I'm not the one who, uh, who, who is. But, you know, and we, we can look at it that way, um, you know, as who, who is benefiting, but who's being hurt? White mm-hmm. folks are too, you know? Um, and in fact, some ways even more than, than people of color, because it's, it's, it's a denial of, of your existence. It's a, it's a denial of, of, of the privilege. It, it's a, de, a denial of yourself. I mean, you know, the, the, we're so intertwined. Races are so intertwined. And just because, you know, several generations later, you end up with the lighter end of the stick and somebody you keep on going back. You got some black in you. I mean, it's just how it, how it worked out and how it happened. So the, the power construct that comes from racism, of course, that there, there's a benefit benefactor and someone who, who's harmed from that. But if you just look at, again, for me, the whole thing, I just think when I, you know, look at history books and look at um, everything to be lied to and to just be told the quarter truth, you know, of, of so much of who we are as a country, of who people are as individuals. When, and I think that's what we're wrestling with right now as a country, actually, is that so much of the truth is coming out and it's not been told for all of these years. What does that mean to me as a white person? You know, how my existence, again, has been fake or you now have to own some of this stuff. So, um, yeah, the power still exists in the white folks, but I think some harm some real harm is still is, is being done um, in the white community as as well. Yeah. And yeah. just to maybe even go into a road rage moment around that. And I I'm going to say this, recognizing that as a white woman, my experience of this rage is much less than any person of color. And it's coming from a great place of privilege. But when I think about the whitewashed presentation of our history. Mm-hmm. And primarily, even if we think of this from a spiritual place, the lack of confession of what how we've been as a country and the lack of really trying to go through an intentional redemption or an intentional asking of forgiveness or an intentional, whatever kind of spiritual concept you want to talk about, but just the way that we buried this history without confronting it and without 
bearing the shame that we mm-hmm. should have borne and that we should continue to bear has is now like that's why we're where we are now with what feels like more splintered and adversarial and unable to talk to each other than I, I know it's not more than it has been before, but it just feels really mm-hmm. present now that that we didn't have to be where we are today if we had done the work. Mm-hmm. however many years ago and been doing the work all along the burying just has has not helped us and is that's what's kind of it's seeping out it can't help but come mm-hmm. out mm-hmm. no exactly um and the church what a role could the church could have taken in that mm-hmm. right you know yeah I mean yeah just that that could have been you know, and Jill, you talked about, you know, the black and white ministerial alliances, you know, that, that, that exists in some places, the, the, the work that could have been done by just reaching over and, and crossing over and really having some of that reckoning and some of those conversations. And, and I think that we would just be in a completely different place right now um, as well. So yeah, no, I agree. And also want to recognize how the church was has been the hub of so many civil rights movements you know has yeah been... yeah yeah not the um, white church but the black not the white, not the white church. church yeah um i'm trying to figure out which 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 way i'm going because i had two thoughts that came to my head so yes the, the church the hub of the, of the civil rights movement and that pastors martha king led that you know i mean so it just shows that the power that that does exist and um had both sides taken taken that that path we might not be perfect but doggone we wouldn't be where we are you know I me mean? right right now i just would have to believe that right now well i feel like we've had hopefully a lot of these moments but either one of you also want to engage in any other road rages before we move on from that category I, I think just echoing back the, the, the rage that I feel around white people trying to, to ease off of the work that there is a lot of, of confession work that white people need to do. There's a lot of education work. We need to be working to learn some things and to unlearn a lot of things and that that's our work. And we certainly should be having conversations with people of color and we should be inviting those perspectives, but it is not the role of people of color in our lives to do that work for us. That's, that's a big ragey moment for me mm-hmm. and yeah, something and that I have to practice all the time. You just hit on probably the thing that, that drives me crazy the, the most is that um, I need for, for white people to, th- this rate, this is not my problem. I didn't create racism. Um, I didn't create race. I didn't ask to be in this country. None of this is my problem. This whole issue was created, was constructed for power. That That's it. And you've, you know, white people have used people of color as pawns in every step of, of the way. And own that. Except mm. this is as a white person's issue to resolve and to reckon with in the white community. And um, when that sh- when that conversation starts to happen, then the, I think the automatic response then is then to turn to the black community for the answer. You got to figure this out. And then you come to me and tell me what you're going to do. And I'll figure out how we're going to work together with your resolution. But I, that that's through this whole, particularly this last year, where, you know, we've seen more of the 
in the, you know, in the past that we have in years past of the social justice, the marches and protests and things like that, it, it's, it has floored me still people are out marching, protesting, but still the lack of accountability that this is a white person's, you know, issue that white people started this. And I, when, when white people accept that and own that, then that's when we'll make real progress. Because I mean, the word minority, simple, I mean, that word alone lets me know I don't have enough power to make this change on, on my own, you know, so um, it's got to just start with that ownership. And that, like I said, has just struck me so much in this past year. And the other thing too, you know, people, when, when white America gets the cold, black America gets pneumonia. And that whole concept, you know, of how, yes, and, you know, both of you have kind of said this a little bit, you know, I don't feel it or I don't understand it in the same way. But whatever pain that a white person feels who's genuinely on this struggle with us, it's a thousand times worse, you know, for, for a black person. And to have that minimized by a me too, well, you know, I, no, you know what I mean? No, give me, let me struggle by myself. If not, you know, you don't have to take this from me too. This is my struggle um, that I'm feeling, the pain that I'm feeling, and don't try to minimize that or, or, or bring yourself into it because you, it will never be felt or understood in the same way that a person of color experiences. It just won't happen. Yeah. I think you just gave us our big U-turn, which is where we try to see what we want instead. And so rather than asking you what we should be doing, like we just said, <laughs> what to do, you know, you told us that white people need to be having these conversations and figuring this out and taking on the burden of this work and taking on the accountability for what we've done and these problems that we caused, even if we didn't call, you know, mm -hmm. yes, we never owned slaves, but mm -hmm. as you said, we benefit from that. And I do something every day that perpetuates that mm -hmm. without knowing it. Mm -hmm. So I, so it's on me to do the work every day to try to become more aware of that and undo some of that. I think so much about the way that I am used to relating to other people. Polly, you're going to, you might roll your eyes at this. I'm going to bring in the Myers-Briggs. So we talk, we, we talk about Myers-Briggs and how there's this category of how you relate to someone, whether it's an intuitive or a sensing, whether you use your own experience to relate to someone. And I think I'm, I'm been really convicted by this in particular this week. in some of the conversations that I've been having is that I naturally want to try and use my own experience to connect with other people. Mm -hmm. So when someone is talking about their experience, I am working to try and build that empathy and build that connection based on things that I have experienced. And as a white person, I cannot get there mm -hmm. to a, the experience of a person with color. And if I continually fit myself in the box of using my own experience, I'm never going to get to the place where that connection is made. And I can work towards trying to find a place of empathy and, and practicing that empathy, but my experience is never going to be that of a person of color. Right. Yep. And it may feel, it sounds like it does feel dismissive to try to make that comparison even though there might be good intent there, it can wind up feeling diminishing of someone's experience when mm -hmm. we're just trying to bring ours in there. Mm -hmm. It becomes like that, um, you know, the, the all lives matter 
you know, I mean, that, you know, mm-hmm. that's kind of what that that's the response is that, you know, I'm telling you I'm going through this, but then you're saying, but I've experienced, you know, and, and that, and you're minimizing, you're minimizing what it is I'm, I'm saying and the gravity of, of the experience that, that, that I'm having in this, in this society. So, um, yeah. 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 Any other U-turns of stuff that we want churches to do better? Any other places where leaders should be doing better? We should all be doing better. Any, or where they're getting it right and we're, and we want to join that. I think I'd like to see p- anyone who calls themselves an advocate in this work, regardless of your, your role to, to act. We, we have talked a lot. We have pages of, and pages of books, of articles, of literature, of every move, whatever you need to find out what the problems are. We, we've talked a whole lot in this country. Um, we, we've read every book, we've had every book discussion, every group, we do all those things. Just do something at this point. Everybody's opinion is not um, necessarily needed when it comes to doing what's right. Um, You know, if you are defined as a leader, then hopefully you have surrounded your peop- yourself with people um, in your flock who trust you to, to lead them in the best direction. And that you will have the, the sense, the, the knowledge, the empathy to move, to do, to act. And, and that's, again, another, I'm probably going back to road rage. Another frustration is, is that there, there's so much talking, which is good, but we can't just talk. It's got to come with some immediate, we identify the problem. What are we going to do? We do it. We evaluate it. Okay. One group is fixing what might be bad, what went wrong, but the next group can move on to the next thing. Um, and we get stuck in these conversations and the feelings and the emotions and, and all of that. And we have to do where that comes from the 400 years of being a black person, knowing to keep your head down and keep going to make progress. But that's the way that, that we have to keep going to. So um, I just wish that leaders would, would take off that, the, the processing, the thinking so much and use what, you know, game plan and let's do it. Put some people boots on people and let's get out there and actually do what needs to be done. Yeah. To use a church metaphor for that, I've heard someone kind of describe it as a parent telling their kid to go clean their room and the kid goes away for a little while and the parent comes in and nothing's changed. The bed's not med toys are all over the place. And it says, I thought you were going to clean your room. And the kid says, well, I prayed about it a long time (laughs) and I read a book about it and I studied it and I called my friends and we got together in a group and we talked about cleaning my room. And so, you know, but but we never got around to actually never did it. And white Christians are, you know, I think a lot of us are at that place of we're, we're doing a lot of educating and that's good. We want to do that, but Mm -hmm. we can continue to educate ourselves while we're acting, while Mm -hmm. we're looking for places to clean our room, while we're looking for places to start doing stuff. Right. And the structures of our churches too, like that, that Presbyterian Church USA is built on a system of structures and committees and well, let's appoint a task force to talk about that and, and the ways in which we slow ourselves down because we have to evaluate it all versus saying like, no, we let's, let's Mm -hmm. do some stuff. Let's, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and, and the, the ways in which I find sometimes action is deferred because it's not big enough. Well, 
well, what difference if it, is it going to make if our little tiny church mm-hmm. decides not to get their communion supplies from the white business, but to get our communion supplies from the black business? What difference is that going to make? Well, it's going to make a difference. It's going to make business. a difference. Yeah. Yep. Yep. We can't worry about the size of impact. We just have to worry that we have made an impact. If mm. we, and, and we have that idea with so many other things. You is, you know, we'll feed one child is that's one less child who's hungry. We'll adopt one family for the holidays. That's one less family. Just do one act that in, you know, one less racist act, you know what I'm saying? Just, and that's one less thing that's out there. Mm-hmm. And that same thought process that we feel good about in other ways, you can feel good about it with anti-racist work too. It's just that it's just step one, um, is all it takes. Anything is better than nothing. Yep. Anything. Yep. Preach. Preach. So we've also mentioned several billboards, several places where this topic's showing up in pop culture and in current events and that kind of thing. Anything else though that we want to pull out and talk about that's happening in our world or where this is relevant that we didn't get to? I really appreciate that um, there's a lot of ways in which the stories of people of color have started to be uplifted and shared. And I think that is a huge way in which white folks can start to have, start to build that empathy, start to have these things because that, those stories aren't a part of our history. Mm-hmm. So I love that for a little while on the Amazon Prime, there was the Black Stories mm-hmm. line when you're mm-hmm. going through and looking at your videos and maybe Netflix has done that too. And I, I, I am encouraged at the ways in which even like, the award ceremonies are starting to look at the ways in which they're lifting up stories of people of color. And we've long ways to go in terms of directors and actors and folks of color that are recognized. But the way in which we absorb our pop culture, I think is changing enough so that there's a lot of opportunity to take in stories about people who don't look like you necessarily. No, absolutely. That, that is a, um, positive shift um you know and that it and hopefully it'll just become normal you know it won't be this thing that stands out as so different you know and it to us that um so yeah no I definitely agree I would imagine too you you mentioned earlier Emma talking about the ways in which you see yourself in you know not not having the example of how to talk about things Mm -hmm. and you you mentioned Madam Vice President um Kamala Harris and the ways in which there is now this opportunity for people of color to see someone who looks like them and the power that comes with being able to identify with someone in another position. Uh, that's got to, will, will you say something about that? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, um, you know, the, on inauguration day, there's kind of the the famous picture of Obama and Madam Vice President um, fist pumping, you know, have you seen that? And so when I saw that, I shared it on social media and I said, you know, God's promise in one picture that, um, you know, all that, that we have been through, that there, there is victory after all of this and that, uh, you know, his, his promise for, for prosperous life just to see us happy, you know, all of the goodness in some ways is, is here, you know, in, in, in this, this picture. And so for me, in this completely personal, to see Kamala Harris 
and, and this is with Michelle and Brock too, but to see, especially Kamala as a woman, as a black woman in the position that she's in, for, for me, it, it processes a little bit differently. But when I saw my 11 year old niece, who her whole, she only knows Barack Obama and Donald Trump and, you know, and, and now uh, Biden, but she knows that Barack Obama was, you know, president. So now she knows that Kamala Harris is, and so now she knows that she can do, she, she only has one example where someone who looks like her wasn't in one of these positions where I have 42, you know, examples or, or you know, however many people that, that weren't. So to see that reminds me again, even my life is much easier than my parents and my grandparents. My niece's life is going to be much easier than mine. But when, hopefully, but when I see her again, that comes to my mind, this is God's promise that she too can be anything that he is covering her. All of us, you know, those who are seen as the, the least of these whose last shall be first. All of those things um, are, are coming, are coming through. And it, it, it just does something different, you know, and to have, again, Michelle Brock and Kamala in those spaces to have who I am, what's normal in my culture elevated and to see just, again, it's not normal because people still question it, but for me to see it on mainstream, you know, to, to just see that and, and for it to at least for the inauguration day to have to be aired as normal to see, you know, black folks up, you know, in these powerful positions. It just, this is that sigh of relief moment, you know, just that, wow, you know, all, all that we have been through in this one moment, it's worth it. You know, in, in this one week, we can see the fruit of the pain, the labor, the, the, the hurt, all the race, and we can see that there's some hope, that there's some light there. Yeah, so that that's kind of where I am with that. I don't know if that was super clear or not, but because I have a lot of, mm. and I've realized that I'm still processing how January 20th changed my life mm. um, in a lot of ways. Um, mm. be, because it, it I, I remember when I saw, um, I mean, when Michelle and Brock walked out, I was just, Michelle was beautiful. So I was just like, oh my gosh, she just looks amazing. But when Kamala walked out and there's a, a former student was actually in the office with me and um, I just started crying and she goes, I have never, she's known me for 14 years. So I, she said, I've never seen you cry. And I just cried and cried and cried just to see her walk out and to know that she was walking out for me. You know, she, I'm, I'm, I felt I was up there with her. She was walking out for me for, and representing the work that I do. I mean, I spend 60 hours a week talking about diversity, equity, inclusion, and, and getting along and power, you know, all these other things. And she's representing all of that. And that is on the forefront of the world stage. Mm -hmm. Wow. You know, I mean, that, that was just a real, I still process. And when I, when I see her on TV, I just get all excited. I'm like a child. I just get all excited. <laughs> um, you know, so anyway, so, so that's, yeah, so that is very powerful um, to, to have her um, in, in that, in that space. Wow. I also get really excited. when. I <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Emma, that is beautiful. That is you have been such a gift to us today 
Preach. Well, thank you. It just has been such a gift to spend this time with you and to sit at your feet and learn from you and to just to, that you were willing to share some of your own experience and your wisdom and to really just take the time to do that. I thank you. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's a oh, blessing. my pleasure. Thank you so much for thinking of me and having me on. I appreciate it. Any final thoughts for you that you want to say as we wrap up? Actually, I do. I do. Just, you know, if, if there's one thing that I would I always wish people would take from any time we, we've spent together is never underestimate the power of, of sharing stories and allowing yourself as much as you can. And we've talked about this to 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 walk through this story with the other person. Mm-hmm. because once you've walked through a story with someone, when, when we let you go from that story, you, you can't be the, I think it's impossible if you truly got, got into that story with them. And I hope that people join this story with me and that um, when, when they go to click the X, you know, button that, that this story, they feel like they, they just, they were let off of, of a ride or, you know, an experience mm. and they're changed now. And if we can, as much as possible, foster that, uh, create that in every interaction, even if it's a 30 second story, in every interaction we have, we will all be forever changed all forever changed. And that starts the work, you know, once you're changed, you want to change other people, you want to keep, you know, keep this feeling going. And so the don't underestimate again, just the power of story and and share your story and listen to other stories um, and, and, and become a part of that, be on that journey. Cause it's, it's a, it's a wild experience when you get to ride with other people, you know, and hear and listen. Um, and, and you can't hate something that you have learned to love. And if we can start doing those simple things, we will overtake all of this hate with love and there's nothing you can do about it is just, mm-hmm. but simply and purely love. So, yeah. So I, I appreciate being able to share that. Wow. I I think that's the perfect put it in park for us today. Most definitely. Most definitely. Rodies, I hope you all have enjoyed this time with us. I know Paula and I have been hugely blessed by our time with you, Emma. We really appreciate your taking time out of your schedule to talk with us. And um, we just want to invite you if you have questions or thoughts about what you've heard in other episodes or suggestions for us we we would love to interact with you we have said it before we'll say it again we really like you (laughs) and we would love to interact with you so you can reach out to us uh, through our website sacredintersectionspodcast.com you can find us on social media on facebook and instagram at sacred intersections podcast on twitter at sacred pod. Thanks again, Emma, for joining us and safe travels to everyone through all your sacred intersections throughout the week.